Well, thank you for coming to this uh, yeah, Easter service. If, if you haven't been here before, I'm, my name's Luke. I'm one, of the, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and um, we're, we're very glad to have you here today. What a beautiful weekend we've had. We were just out at the Moxins at a, uh, for our morning service at the Easter egg hunt. No, not really, but uh, we had a great time this morning. But I, I love this, this time of year when, when the, the spring is, is bursting upon us. It doesn't happen that often that we get this great of weather. But one of the reasons I love it is because it's almost... With all the new life coming out, it's almost as if God has reminded us in the, in the waxing and waning of the seasons that life comes out of death. Uh, the death of winter springs into new life every year, and it's almost as if it's a little promise that there, there's new creation life coming on the other side of death, and that's so appropriate as we think about the resurrection. I want to I start today by... <clears throat> pointing you, or, or reading for you, the, the beginning of, of a book I just picked up that last week on the story of Christianity, the history of Christianity. It starts like this. He was a teacher and a miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to just outdoor gatherings. A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than several hundred. How was it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world? This is the question that brings us here. And that's the question that brings us here, not just to the book, but today. Now, the answer to that question might seem complex. I mean, he spends 800 pages unpacking that, okay? But in reality, there's one singular event that changed the course of human history. There's only one event that could have ever caused Jesus to go from a footnote in history to the most influential figure in the entire world. And if you think maybe I'm, I'm overstating the case here about Jesus' influence, and, and maybe Christianity is in decline, and it will soon be a relic of the past, consider this statistic. Close to half of the Christian believers who have ever lived are alive right now. How did we get here? The simple answer is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we've come to the end of Mark, haven't we? We've been here for 16 weeks. Last week, Ben gave us a sermon entitled, The End, The End of Jesus' Life, right? And it seems a bit ironic that we're starting this sermon, the, the final sermon in Mark, as the beginning. Usually, the beginning comes before the end, right? The beginning of what? It's the beginning of the new creation. It's the beginning of Jesus' promise to make all things new. The resurrection story is told for us in four ancient books, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have been in the book, the, the account of, of Mark, for the last 16 week, weeks. And what, what's unique about the resurrection story, they're, they're all slightly different. Not that they contradict one another, but they're, they're all just different stories of the resurrection, okay? Pulling out different details. And, and one of the interesting things thing about Mark's account is that Jesus is not really featured, I mean, at the end of the book of Mark, Jesus doesn't show up. 
the story of the resurrection is told through the eyes of other people. Primarily a religious leader named Joseph and then a group of women. And that got me thinking, what about the, what about the Sanhedrin? What about the Mary, the mother of Jesus? What about the disciples of Jesus, his best friends? What were they doing on that Friday evening, just hours after Jesus, this supposed Messiah, breathed his last? That's where our narrative begins. Friday evening, just after the death of Jesus. So I want us to look at the, the burial and resurrection of Jesus through the lens of five different characters, okay? And you can see the first character up on the screen, the first group, you could say, is the Jewish or religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. Jesus is crucified on a Friday, but it's not just any Friday, is it? It's the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, Passover. Now, if you're an ancient Jew, the way you celebrated this, this holiday, this is, this is Christmas for them, okay? You celebrate it with a massive deal. They don't have the massive turkey, but they have a massive lamb or, or something like that. And this was their version of, in America, of this was their Independence Day, 4th of July for me. I know, not for you, but uh, this was their Christmas dinner. This is the meal where you, you, you had to eat this meal with the family, okay? The irony, of course, is that this meal for them is highly symbolic, when you ate the lamb, Jai taught us about this a few weeks ago. When you ate the lamb, you were reminded that God offered a lamb as a substitute for your forefathers. The only reason you're here today was because your forefathers were saved by God offering a lamb. The irony here is that these religious leaders, on Friday night, these same ones who had just set up a kangaroo court and condemned Jesus to death, the true lamb of God was sacrificed right before their eyes, and then they scurry off when the business is done, and they celebrate. It's Christmas dinner. And you can imagine their relief at that moment. I mean, the Sanhedrin, they wanted order, and, and they would stamp out any threat to, to order, to, to, to their order, or to, sorry, to their authority. And Jesus was a threat. Sure, I think it got a bit messy. They didn't want it to get messy as it did. I think they would have preferred for Jesus to, to go away without a crucifixion, without having to get involved with going to Pilate and then to Herod. They, they didn't like Pilate and Herod. But sometimes when the threat gets serious enough, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my... Come on, guys. Friend, very good. Just want to make sure you're all awake today. I'm sure those religious leaders thought to themselves that evening... Well, that will do it. This little group of rebellious followers of Jesus, that'll shut them down. You cut off the head and the body will go limp soon enough, won't it? Now let's eat. What about Mary, the mother of Jesus? What was she doing? We know from the Gospel of John that Jesus' mother, Mary, was at the crucifixion. No onlooker that day experienced the pain of that crucifixion like she did. But consider this. This is the same Mary at the beginning of our story to whom an, a, an angel announced to her in Luke 1, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. 
He will be great and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is the same Mary who, who at the birth of Jesus, her son, sang this. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me holy is his name as she walks out of jerusalem that evening can you imagine the confusion and despair settling in her heart all the hope surrounding the birth of her son is just suddenly dashed upon the rocks what about the disciples? The disciples on Friday night are, are ruined, and they're on the run. Sometimes an author makes an important point by what he says, and other times he makes an important point by what he doesn't say. And what you'll notice at the end of the, Mar- at the, end of the book of Mark is that the disciples are noticeably not there. They're nowhere to be found. These are the same ones who said, Jesus, just a few chapters ago, we'll we'll never leave you. They're nowhere to be found. And at one level, I think it's understandable. We don't want to be too hard on them. They, They had sunk three years of their lives into Jesus and the hope that he offered them. These were no casual supporters. They were they were missionaries. They left their jobs, they left their families. They sunk every inch of their being into Jesus and who he said he was. But at this moment, like Mary, the confusion between what they witnessed in Jesus and now the outcome of his life is just a chasm too too, too far for them to, to reconcile in their minds. And so they're ruined. And they're running. The fourth character I want you to consider is a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He's actually in the story, so we're actually going to get the Bible. (laughs) Mark tells us in chapter 15, verse 43, that this Joseph was a member of the council. That means he he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He, he He was part of the council that just hours before had condemned Jesus to death in the middle of the night. He, he sat through the sham court and the false accusations. He was there. But Mark tells us that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. Meaning, meaning he was sympathetic with Jesus. He was probably, perhaps, a secret follower of Jesus. Now, while the disciples are scattering, right, Joseph, this member of the Sanhedrin, the first group that we looked at, takes a move, an an action of incredible boldness and courage, Mark tells us. You see, what happens is the victims of crucifixion are, are after they're dead, they're tossed into an anonymous mass grave. In that culture, if if you had a shameful life, you not only deserved a shameful death, but you also deserved a shameful resting place. And given the grotesque beatings that Jesus received before the cross, he, he dies quicker than most crucifixion victims. 
And now because the Jewish law demands that, that someone cannot stay up on the cross over Sabbath, they've got to come down, Jesus dies about 3 p.m. on Friday. And Sabbath begins at, at sundown, so at 6 p.m. So there's a time of about three hours before his death and, and, and when he's got to get off the cross. So Pilate knows, or sorry, not Pilate, Joseph knows he's got to act quickly so that he's not thrust into this anonymous mass grave. So he goes to Pilate to ask permission to take the body of Jesus and bury him in the family tomb. And, and you can imagine why Mark tells us this took courage. Because first of all, for Joseph, he's a religious leader, right? If you touch, an, if you touch a dead body right before the Sabbath or the Passover, you're, you're ceremonially unclean and you can't, you can't participate in any of the festivities of Passover. But, but even more importantly, you can imagine with all the disciples running for fear of their lives, probably, this action may have trumped up possible charges of sedition, rebellion. It was a courageous move. Well, Pilate in the story is surprised to hear that Jesus is already dead. Like we said, it, usually this took a little bit longer. So, so he, he, he tells, he, he goes, to, he asks his, one of the soldiers to go and check on Jesus to make sure he's really dead. We know in another account that when he went there, they actually pierced him with a spear just to ensure that he was dead. And he comes back to Pilate and says, yes, he is certainly dead dead. Now Mark is recording, is carefully recording important details for us. Mark's usually skipping through details, but he's recording some important ones here. Because very soon after Jesus' death, theories about about Jesus' resurrection starts, you know, coming up. And one of those was that maybe Jesus never died. Maybe he just was severely injured in in a kind of a comatose state, and then, you know, a few days later, just waltzes out of the tomb. And and Mark is saying, that's impossible with these details. Well, once Pilate grants permission, Joseph's got to make quick work, doesn't he? He has to go purchase the linen cloth. He's got to to, to wrap Jesus' body in. He's got to go back to Golgotha. He's got to take his body down the cross. He's got to wash the body and wrap it in a linen cloth and then get it all the way to his tomb by sundown. And in such a rush, you know, some things have to be kept for later. The burial process can't go on as normal. So, so the whole process of anointing the body with spices and oils in order, to, in order to slow the decay down has to be done another day. It's got to wait until after Sabbath. And, and we know, right, that a few women are tasked with this responsibility. And that brings me to the fifth group or the fifth character in this story. It's a group of women who are really the focus of this final story. You may have noticed today that we started reading in chapter 15, verse 40, which is the end of the crucifixion story. Now, there's, why, would I, why would I start at the end of the previous story? There's a reason for that. Mark ties the final three scenes together. The crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, he ties them together by the appearance of three women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and a lady named Salome. Now, Mark, Mark writes very generically. He doesn't usually give people specific names. And when he does give someone a specific name, you you know he's, he's really marking them out. He's saying these three women are eyewitnesses of his crucifixion, verse 40 and 41, of his burial, 
verse 47. And of his, and they're the first ones to encounter the tomb in chapter 16. And it's interesting, when, when, it, when it talks about the burial in, 15, in chapter 15, verse 47, it specifically notes that they saw where he was laid. Again, another one of those theories began to crop up in the early church that perhaps these women went to the tomb. They're, these are big family tombs with many slots, and maybe they just didn't know. They, they didn't have the right tomb, and so they just went through the wrong one. Mark's saying, no, 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 they saw exactly where he was laid. That's impossible. These women, just like the 12 disciples, were followers of Jesus. They, they saw his miracles. They followed his teachings. But here, while the disciples have scattered, who's remained back to care for the body of Jesus and really to risk arrest in order to respect Jesus? It's these women in a rush to get Jesus off the cross, right? I just said that the preparation of Jesus' body had to be delayed. So Mark 16, the last chapter of Mark, begins by telling us that early on Sunday morning, these women are on their way to finish the burial process. Now, it's important to note, these women are not going to the tomb expecting a resurrection, right? What are they expecting? A dead body, they're expecting to go and, and dress Jesus' body to make it prepared for the long-term burial. And I love, I love their conversation. It feels so natural on the way in chapter 16. They're just conversing with each other on, on the way to the tomb. They've already packed their oils and spices, and, and then along about halfway down, they, they start thinking, hey, how are we going to... How are we going to get the tomb open? There's this massive boulder there. What are we going to do? You know, I, presumably, they went on and, and assumed that maybe a few Roman soldiers would help them move it. But to their surprise, when they arrived at the tomb, the stone blocking the entrance has been mysteriously rolled away. And to their greater surprise, a young man in a white robe, other accounts say an angel, is standing there. Of course, they're, ter they're terrified. Their first, their first instinct at the tomb that day is not, Jesus is alive. It's, who stole the body? But it's at this moment that the heavenly figure tells them something that will change their lives and will change the course of human history. You don't need to be afraid, he says. I know you're looking for Jesus. The Nazarene, the one whom you, that was crucified? He has risen. He is not here. You saw where he was laid. Now look, look where he's laid. It struck me this week that if those ladies went to the tomb and had the mourning they were expecting, getting there, dressing the body of Jesus, perhaps crying a little bit, perhaps feeling his scars, hugging one another, carefully unwrapping in oil, spices, putting it back together, go home to Peter's for lunch. If their, if their day goes as expected, there's no Christianity. We're not here today. That never happens. Thought about that. If they just have a normal day, 
It's a footnote of history. Never gets off the ground. But they didn't find him there. Now, many of you will know this already, but the, the early church was scorned, and they were mocked mercilessly by Jewish and Roman, by the Jewish and Roman culture, because as one Roman poet put it, you Christians, hysterical women were the original witnesses of the resurrection. So we know it can't be true. Now, that's a terrible thing to say, right? But one of the graces that God has given us in God's wisdom is that he placed this group of women right here, right at that time. Why? Because it basically rules out any attempt to say that the disciples made this story up. Because if you were going to make up a story in the ancient Near East, right, you would put people of respect and social status, you would put, you know, the the religious leader at the tomb that day and say, see, Joseph of Arimathea saw it first. You would never make this up. That's why most modern historians still say this has the ring of authenticity. Well, ancient Romans may not have thought that it was worthwhile having women at the, at the, as the first bearers of this news, but God entrusts these courageous and these obedient women with, with news that will change the course of human history, doesn't he? Verse 7, the angel says, Go, tell the disciples, and tell Peter. And I think as he, speci- he specifically marks out Peter, because I think Peter's the arch offender. Tell the disciples, tell Peter also. I'm going ahead of you. I'm going to be in Galilee. There you will see me, just as he told you. And it's interesting. Mark ends with a note of uncertainty. The women are trembling. They're astonished. They're running in fear. They're, they're running to the disciples to tell them, I think, and, and they're, not, they're not stopping to tell anyone. They're not, they're not saying a word to anyone. It's a strange way to end. All the other accounts of the resurrection end with Jesus coming, with Jesus appearing with his disciples and having this little, you know, hug fest and commissioning and, you know, it's, just, it's, it's fireworks and all the rest. This one is what? Of course, we know that he appears to all his other disciples. I almost did an interest slot today showing about the 30 different appearances in the Bible of Jesus after, but we didn't have time for it. But the one thing that Mark's abrupt ending does is this. It's almost as if Mark is saying, fill out the rest of the story yourself. How does the news of Jesus' resurrection make a difference in your own life? That's where I want to plant for the remaining few minutes we have here today. You know, we've talked before about all the evidence for the resurrection. I think a couple years ago I preached and I had five or six, you know, this is why we we believe it must have been true and this is why and this is why and this is why. But you know, you can get that. You just read any blog, you know, just Google it. (laughs) We've done that other times. It's, it's It's healthy, but I'm going to assume it's true for a moment and just what, what makes the, what does it make a difference in your life? What does the Jesus' resurrection mean for us? Let me try to answer that question by telling you about a video game. I hate video games. I'm 
awful at video games. I was always the kid growing up where all the friends, you know, they get together to play video games. I'm just sitting there back in the day on Instant Messenger. You guys remember that? Talking to girls usually. This was a long, long time ago. Um, But believe it or not, I actually watched a documentary about a video game recently. And this video game has won a ton of awards uh, in gamer world. But it's the story behind the video game that caught my attention. The game is called That Dragon Cancer. A few years ago, a guy named Ryan Green, he's a video game designer, was told that his two-year-old son, Joel, had terminal brain cancer. Now, little Joel lived for another three years. But, but for Ryan and his life, those were three absolutely excruciating years. They were searching for solutions, and they felt like their world was just spinning out of control. Ryan talks about one night when he just felt totally helpless and and totally hopeless. He was in the hospital with his son. He's been in the hospital for months, right? And his son is in excruciating pain, and he's crying out for his dad to help just relieve the pain. Help me, Daddy. And he says, I couldn't do anything. He, he, He couldn't even hold him. Wasn't allowed to. He couldn't soothe his pain. The medicine wasn't working. And he calls his wife and just says, can you please come and help me? I feel like I'm playing a video game where all the mechanics are broken. There's nothing I can do. Video games are about skill, endurance, practice, right? You learn how to overcome obstacles and then your skill and your knowledge improves. And as it improves, right, you, you climb closer and closer to victory level by level. But this felt nothing like Ryan's life. Ryan had no control over his son's life. So he, de- he decided that he was going to make a video game that was true to life. It was a video game that would memorialize his son, but it also helped him just cope with his his death. And in this game, you have to save his son's life, but the problem is there are no answers at any level. Every Every level of the game provides obstacles, but there's never the right treatment. You're simply carried from level to level, even though you you fail at every one. Now, in most video games, there's, there's one final obstacle before victory. You get to the final level, and you meet what they call the big boss, the ultimate challenger. If you can defeat the big boss, then you get glory, right? And usually in the room of, uh, you know, balloons falling down the screen or something. <laughs> but this is what Ryan realized. In real life, we never defeat the big boss. Because the big boss is death. And death always wins. Its winning percentage is 100%. Not trying to be overly morbid, but I will die, right? And you will die. We know that. Absolutely. The resurrection of Jesus is addressing the ultimate big boss of death. 
But, but I'm afraid, friends, that, that we won't see the importance of the resurrection because we don't often consider death. Death is one of those inescapable realities, right? We all die, just said that. But on the one hand, it's weird how our, our culture, that includes us, thinks about death. On the one hand, we're obsessed with it, right? We spend oodles of money and time thinking of ways to avoid death or delay death, don't we? But on the other hand, we avoid thinking about it at all costs. One evangelist, a guy named Glenn Scrivener, said, describes our culture like this. We treat life like it's one big holiday at the beach. And while the tsunami wave of death is bearing down on us, and we know it, we decide to shift our attention and continue working on our sandcastle. We're death deniers. And when we ignore death or we deny death, we're totally out of reality. We're, we're totally out of touch with reality. We live often like we're never going to die, but deep down we know it's coming and we, we just can't look. Now li- listen, I get it. I am deeply, deeply afraid of death. My, my greatest fear, my nightmare at night is that I won't exceed my, my experience, my children growing up. That, that's ex- I, I can't think of anything worse. But listen, I, I'm not promised tomorrow. And neither are they. Every gift, every breath that I take, every breath that they take, every breath that you take is a gift from God, not a right if we don't get that, we'll never understand the God of the Bible. But we're, we're often so out of touch, ignoring or denying the reality of our death. Let me explain how this happened. I, I realized this myself the other day. A few days ago, I'm reading a book about amazing advances in medical technology. Phenomenal advances. Th- this book that I was reading was talking about how many in the medical community are projecting that new technology... Will, will allow for organ regeneration. It's actually already out there. Organ regeneration. There, there's other forthcoming technology that should be developed in the next 20 to 30 years that will, uh, that will delay cellular degeneration and therefore raise the expected life expectancy well over 100. And I'll be honest, my heart leapt a bit. I mean, I'm hearing this and I'm thinking to myself, if this comes in the next 30 years, maybe it will affect me. Maybe it will extend my life another 20 years. And later that evening, I sat down to work on this sermon, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Jesus is providing resurrection life. And my heart leaps at the thought of potentially 20 more years. And right in front of me, Jesus is saying, death defeated, everlasting life, death in the rearview mirror, gone. And I thought to myself, how often we, are, we find ourselves clamoring, scraping for the breadcrumbs that the world offers us, that 
fall off the edge of the table. And here's Jesus offering us a feast. But we don't see it. We pick up the breadcrumbs and go, wow, how, how amazing. Can you see this? And we miss the feast right in front of us. Back to the video game. After navigating, frustrating level after level, always losing, you come to the level in which Joel dies. He always dies. You can't avoid it. But I want to show you a clip from the documentary that explains what happens next. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of God making all things new. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. For Jesus will reign until he puts all his enemies. He's going to put every enemy under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus' life, Mark 16, defeats death. And he defeats death for those who trust in him. Friends, death surrounds us every day, doesn't it? But without the hope of resurrection life, you won't be able to cope with the death that you find around you. You'll have to either deny death or ignore it. And I'm not just talking about physical death here. I'm talking about all the kinds of death that are the product of living in a fallen and broken world. I'm talking about the death of your dreams. I'm talking about the death of your job. The death of your broken relationships, friendships. I'm talking about the death of independence as you age talking about the death of your beauty, death of your health, your actual death, of course. Mark 16, Jesus is the answer to death. If you don't know and cherish the resurrected Jesus, though, you're not going to be able to, you won't have the resources to cope with all the death that you find in this life. You won't be able to do it. If you're a Christian here today, you don't have to deny or ignore death any longer. You know that? You don't have to be, you don't have to continue on pretending like you're immortal. We often pretend that we'll never die. You can look at your, you can look your mortality straight in the face. Because Jesus has plunged himself into death and secured life everlasting for you. If you're, not he- if you're here today and you're not a Christian, really glad you're here. And I, this, this, this also includes teenagers, children in our church who, who have never encountered Jesus as well. It's easy when you're 16 or 17 Life feels like it's, death feels like it's a million miles away, doesn't it? Life's on the horizon. 
exciting times. But the tsunami wave of death is bearing down on you. It's bearing down on me. It's bearing down on all of us. You can't ignore it and just continue playing with your sandcastle. Because it's going to come and it will destroy you and your sandcastle, won't it? it? The only thing you can do is look straight into that wave. Look death straight in the face and find the one who has already defeated death and who provides life on the other side. Do that. Let's pray.